Well, hello everyone. Time for a new Military History Verbalized podcast. And today we have a special guest. We have a weapons troop from the US Air Force, Quentin. Hello, Quentin. Hello. Great to be here. And Quentin, can you give us a basic overview what you're doing and what you're working on? Okay, so I am a uh, US Air Force weapons troop. So in short, we work with anything that has to do with weapon systems on any aircraft. Specifically for me, it's the F-16, the Fighting Falcon. Uh, so we work on the gun, uh, we load the, the weapon systems, so bombs, missiles, etc. Uh, we load the ammo, we rip the guns out when they're due for maintenance, and then we also have a backshop component. So when anything that is a weapons-related component is taken off the aircraft, uh, we send it to them, and they repair it, inspect it, that's pretty much the gist of it for a, a very baseline. Okay, um, about this. So basically, what do you do on a on a daily or weekly basis? Basically, if you're, for instance, if you're deployed in in a war zone. So day to day in say a war zone, because back home is a a little bit different at your home base compared to being deployed. So say I was in Bagram, uh, and we were dropping bombs on ISIS or uh, whatever. So over there, there's always alert jets. You're, you're doing a lot of the same stuff. You're keeping up on uh, maintenance on the aircraft. Uh, every piece of the aircraft that we work with usually has inspections due on it, whether it's just uh, basically applying spray paint to keep it uh, rust corrosion. Um, you're obviously going to be loading a lot. The flight line component is going to be uh, keeping jets loaded uh, if they're doing uh, any sort of active missions in the area. There's always a few jets in the air. They may or may not drop their bombs, and as soon as they come back, they get refueled, rearmed, and the next three or four, whoever it is, goes back up. So it's kind of a, a constant cycle. You're you're always working. Um, the 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 kind of work schedule is 12 hours on, 12 hours off, with one day off. Um, usually, some people get lucky if it's a Sunday, but for some people it might be a Wednesday, etc. And that's the that's the deployed. That's that's when you're you're downrange actually dropping munitions. Um, back home at your home base. So from where I'm from, uh, here in New Mexico, uh, we're doing the same stuff. We're doing the maintenance. Uh, pylons may have to come down because they're doing inspection. Um, we're a training base here, so we load uh, inert munitions for the pilots to train with, um, and then um, we still have our backshop component. But it's it's the same it's the same sort of thing, but not as high of tempo. So that that's that's here at the training base. Overseas, you're going to so say in Korea or over in Europe, where they're in um, much higher potential for conflict, and they're actually a combat base. They're doing the same kind of thing, usually longer hours. Um, they're working five days a week on average, um, anywhere from uh, eight if you're lucky, but usually ten to fourteen hours. Uh, a day. It's it's quite long hours, but they have a, a real mission to accomplish. So anytime the sirens go or they get the, the call to generate a sortie, uh, everything's just go, go, go. And that might go over a weekend. You might be working nine days in a row or, or more, uh, getting a sortie ready to uh, deploy to Syria or get ready for air defense sort of thing. Okay, um, and about the sections, you, you mentioned the back shop and you mentioned the flight line. Is this how how is is this is this um an organizational distinction or is it like really a physical one? For instance, that the flight line is I don't know 
closer to the to the to the runway and the back shop is really far behind in some some hall and and you repair there <laughs> how 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 can i imagine this or is this very different also depending on the base layout uh so yes it's it's very different location wise uh base per base for us here our back shop is actually very close it's i don't even know like a little like a one minute walk uh, from our from our shop, which is where basically all the offices are, and where we come into work before we head out to do work. So um, they're they're usually they're usually separate. Um, they have their own location. Backshop has to take in a lot of very heavy and large equipment, so they usually are placed in an area where they can store that equipment and uh, uh, so they can process it. Um, and then the flight line people are obviously they're they're usually. Uh, close to the actual line itself, um, the line. So where where all the hangars are, all the, the hazes they uh, they call them, they can they can really range in distance. So here our hazes are extremely close together. Um, all 42 or whatever it is of our um, of our hangars are very close together. They're um, they're pretty. It's 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 because we're stateside. They don't really need to have them spaced out. Overseas, your flight line could be a a uh, one and a half mile, two mile walk from one side, from the nearest hangar to the farthest, a sort of ordeal. Uh, in terms of organizational, uh, it's a it's a distinction. They're 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 weapons troops. Like Backshop is weapons troops, but they don't come out not unless it's like very very rare circumstances. They're they're doing their own thing. Uh, they're they're processing all the. Um, all the inspections and things that are due and fixing things. Whereas we on the flight line, because that's what I currently am, uh, we're doing the loading and uh, the on equipment or the the on the jet kind of maintenance. So they they have their own chain of command. They have their own uh, flight chiefs, which is kind of like the head of the the weapon section for that area. And uh, so yeah, that's it's it's organizational and also locational, but the location is definitely base dependent. Okay, so basically on the flight line, there's everything that get, is getting ready for mission or after mission, whereas the back shop is basically major repairs, major maintenance. Is this correct? Yeah, it's um major major maintenance that has to do with weapon systems. Yes. So, and if there's other major maintenance, where do you put then the the, the planes? Um, so there's a a couple of there's a couple of different levels of maintenance. So we have our uh, the, the on equipment, so the stuff that you can do. The plane is still basically flyable. Um, there's nothing majorly wrong with it, or a major major inspection is hasn't come due. Uh, they'll stay on the flight line. You go out to the hangar or whatever location it's at, and you do your maintenance there. Uh, really in-depth maintenance. There's uh, two levels of that. So one of it is called phase, which is where the jet will get taken if the base has the capability to do it. Um, It'll be taken to a phase dock or an area where they can they take off all the panels. Um, they usually are doing um, uh, non-destructive inspections on the airframe itself to make sure there's no cracks. Uh, they do they check pipelines. They check uh, they do they do engine checks. They might pull the engine to uh, check inside the engine well to make sure there's nothing wrong. Phase does a lot. I'm uh, that that's a, a subsection of the crew chiefs, so the the general mechanics on the aircraft. I don't know a whole lot about what they do. Like I know, I know quite a bit, but in terms of the specifics that Phase does, I do not. 
Uh, and then the last level is called depot maintenance, which is where the jet, it usually has to get sent to uh, Hill Air Force Base. Um, and that's where they do a complete teardown of the entire aircraft. They remove pretty much every single major component um, and do a full inspection to uh, repair anything if it needs to be. So basically, there's there's a clear difference between maintenance on the weapon systems and the the other components. Yeah, correct. Um, that's that's why we have our own back shop. That's why we have our own because um, the jet may still be able to fly, but if a pylon gets damaged or if it's not functioning properly, we take it off, replace it, and then send it to our back shop. So that way, the jet can still fly its mission um, without having to go down for uh, a major maintenance on our part. Yeah, okay, that makes yeah, that makes me more sense because yeah, this is more mission oriented and and yeah, 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 very interesting. I mean, it's probably just a detail for you, but for me, it's like oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, mm -hmm. moving to to another part, I mean, you're dealing with you mentioned with guns, bombs, rockets, missiles, and everything. For what um, a very specific question from from my part is basically. For instance, for the guns, what kind of ammunition do you still use? Because in the second world where you always hear, I mean, I also know it from games where I don't know how accurate this. You have ball ammunition, you have incendiary, you have armor piercing, you have all these different ammo types. And and for instance, for the, the F-16, I think it has a minigun in it. So what, what kind of ammo is more or less loaded into, into the minigun? Okay. Yeah, um, so the F-16 and a lot of our jets use the M61A1 uh, gun system. It's a 20-millimeter Gatling gun, uh, capable of firing anywhere from 2,500 up to 7,500 rounds per minute. Um, very fast. Uh, and it's all depending on what it's driven by. So it can be hydraulic, electric, etc. And I can explain that a little bit, a little bit more. So the different types of ammo... Uh, it's been, it's pretty standard to what you might see in video games. So take for instance, since I have experience in it and I do enjoy the game, uh, is War Thunder. You're going to be seeing pretty much the same types of munitions you'll see in there for American aircraft. You basically, we use, uh, different belts as well, or different combinations, but the, the main three is going to be your API or armor piercing incendiary. Uh, your HEI, uh, which is the high explosive incendiary, and then you have the uh, the SAPI or the semi-armor piercing high explosive incendiaries. The most common is usually HEI. That's the uh, that's pretty much the go-to round because it's still a 20 millimeter. Um, the uh, this gun system is not necessarily meant for anti-armor in any sort of way, so high explosive is usually the uh, the way to go. So it's uh, you'll you'll pretty much only see that, um, and then sometimes they'll have a little bit of a combo mix. If they if they are planning on strafing ground targets, they will add in the API or the armor piercing incendiaries. And for for air to air combat, or is it even used for air to air combat? I think there was something like in Vietnam War that you didn't have guns anymore, and then you realized they were needed again. So. <laughs> oh man, do I have an opinion on that actually? Uh, so uh, yeah, so as you know, um, kind of going back a little bit, the F4 Phantom, uh, yeah. or the the F4 was originally designed with no gun system in it, and it's a big thing that they always tell pilots when they're going through the training, and it's things you can look up all the time during the Korean War is that we were losing a lot of our jets 
almost one to one against uh, the Korean fighters, but we ha it was a two person jet, so they're like the losses are very high. And they wound up developing a gun pod to stick on the center line. All of a sudden, the kill ratio started going up. They start training how to do aerial gunnery and aerial uh, aerial combat with this jet instead of just relying on the extremely unreliable early versions of the AIM-9 and the AIM-7. And they went back to it and it started going good. Funny enough, when you come to the F-16, that jet also was not designed with a gun system in it. The original design that Lockheed put forward with the F-16 did not have a gun system in it. So before it was actually delivered, the gun system was uh, put in there. But from from personal experience, this is kind of one of these little little side stories on it. The the um, it is the most complex iteration of the M61A1 in terms of like little parts and element shoots and uh, the drum being in a weird spot inside the actual aircraft. Um, very difficult to work on sometimes. Uh, it takes a very long time to pull out and put in. So they they did do it, but it was kind of shoehorned. So maintenance wise, it's a kind of a pain. And and is it used anymore? I mean, oh. I understand in the Vietnam War it was basically the the lack of the early air-to-air -air missiles, which were completely mm -hmm. unreliable, and also the technology was different. So I think back then the auto cannon made sense from also from what I hear from you. But like later on, since the missiles got more reliable, it sounds more yeah, it's still there. But there are different opinions on it if it's necessary or not. Is it correct? Oh yes, uh, my apologies. So the so in terms of air combat, um, you can kind of look this up as well. There have not, there hasn't been any real air-to-air -air fighter combat in a very long time now, uh, except for the Navy. They actually beat us, which is funny. They did the thing that the Air Force is supposed to do, and they've shot down uh, two aircraft over the last, I think it was two and a half decades. The first one was an F four. I do believe it was an F-14, I can't remember, and then an F-18 shot something down fairly recently. Um, so, in terms of air combat, they teach aerial gunnery, uh, they do, but like you said, with the, with the reliability of missiles and how deadly and accurate the new iterations, such as the AIM-9X, uh, the, the new Sidewinder, and the, uh, the AIM-120 with its upgraded variants, uh, they're very, very precise. Um, you're usually engaging beyond visual range. So yes, arguably you could say that a auto cannon or Gatling cannon is not necessarily needed there. However, they, like I said before with the HEI uh, comments, they do actually use the gun to strafe ground targets quite frequently. Okay. Um, it's it's usually down like uh, downrange when they're deployed. They they will use that cannon. Uh, to strafe ground targets. Um, the one in the uh, F-16 fires at about 6,000 rounds per minute, which is 100 rounds per second. You have about five seconds of fire time, but it is still enough to take out, uh, like say, strafe a building or take out uh, some lightly armored vehicles without having to use a, uh, a missile system such as a, uh, an AGM-65 Maverick or um, using a bomb. And it's a bit of a cheaper alternative, so they will use it uh, against ground targets currently. So ideally for strafing a column, for instance, or giving some, yeah, close mm -hmm. air support. Correct. As far as I know, is this correct? Our rockets are unguided and missiles are guided weapons? Uh, correct. Yes, that's a, that, that's, I'm pretty sure that's actually the uh, like dictionary classification of them, yes. 
Um, are they, are you uh, rockets are still used on the F sixteen? Um, so this this I personally haven't dealt with uh, at this base, and I will not be dealing with it at the bases I'll be going. But from what I have heard from other weapons troops, we do still they train with rockets. Um, they they do. But the, the rocket systems, so it uses Allow 131, I do believe. Uh, those are the standard 2.75 inch, uh, just basically, it looks like a hydropod, if you want to call it that. Um, are, they're actually extremely unreliable. Those are they're, they're like on the Apache, right? Usually this, uh, those, those round pylons with their old... Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, the, the Army and the and the... The Marines still use rockets quite frequently. We train, like, uh, so I, here at my base, they train uh, F-16 pilots. Like, the, they, teach, they teach them how to fly and do air combat. And then they give them very basic um, how to drop bombs, like how to operate their aircraft correctly using everything in the cockpit. But when they go to a real base, they will start uh, practicing with the munitions that they're going to be using there because every base has its own mission. So I have heard that they, they have still loaded rockets. They still do it. And occasionally when they are... Uh, uh, downrange, they will use them because it's uh, it's cheap and effective against soft targets. Same thing with the gun with using HEI. Uh, so they they do use them. It is not very frequent though. It's a pretty infrequent thing because um, this is kind of breaking into the the uh, kind of the Air Force uh, overall mission. I mean, the Marines and the Army use probably more close air support or have something more to do with with ground targets in the Army. Uh, the Air Force, I guess. Uh, yeah, that would actually be fair because they're they're loaded on the helicopters, and the helicopters have a little bit of a better time being able to kind of sit there and uh, have a lot of kind of wide strafing type of weapons. So they have their auto cannon in the in the chin, um, and then they have the rockets. So that's that's definitely a fair argument. And for us, it's more since since the aircraft are coming in and doing precision strikes anyway, uh, they usually uh, try to use uh, bombs or a Maverick instead of rockets. Yeah, you have less time, you're coming from higher, you are way faster. I mean, Apache is quite mm. slow compared to a jet fighter. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, actually, a, a little bit more on that, the, the personal accounts from some of my friends who have worked with rockets. And this is kind of the part of the reason why they don't use rockets for us very much. Um, the modern military, especially the U U.S. Air Force, is all about safety. Um, the... The rockets and the rocket systems, especially the rocket pods themselves, uh, not the, the actual rockets, but the rocket pods are very, very old. Um, they're probably back from the Korean War, honestly, some of these pods, um, and they've just been kind of maintained. They're extremely unreliable, and uh, you'll load up a jet with two pods of 14, and when the, when the pilot goes to fire them, maybe only, sometimes only four of them will fire. Oh. Out of the entire tube. Now, unfortunately, because of our... Well, I guess, fortunately, it keeps us safe. Um, because of our safety standards, when a jet comes back, and if he has tried to fire that munition, and it didn't go out, it is a... Uh, it becomes a air emergency. And when he lands, he has to land in a specific area. He has to be pointing away from anything that, it could, that could be harmed. And they have to have uh, a fire response team and EOD go out to the jet just to make sure that these rockets are get downloaded properly. Um, cause technically since the rocket has tried to fire, um, or the sig or s supposedly the signal has been sent to the rocket, uh, it could have ign ign ignited the motor partially and it just didn't completely go off. 
Um, there could be something shorting out that if you, when you touch the back, it might connect again and it could fire the rocket. So there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And that's part of the reason why we don't use rockets is because if they don't fire all of them, which is like a 95% chance that at least one rocket is going to be stuck in the tube, it creates this whole ordeal and uh, not really worth using it when you could just throw a GBU-38, so a JDAM on there and do the same thing. Yeah, that so, makes sense. I mean, a little bit of admi administration behind why we don't use rockets anymore. Yeah, I think... Um... Something like that, a rocket going off too early was, was the cause for the USS Forrestal um, aircraft carrier fire back then. I think there was something on those. I might have read something about that. I'm not quite aware of that, but that's very possible. Those things, uh, they're, they're extremely dangerous. And actually, a little funny story when you're loading them. Usually we have the lowest ranking airmen. Uh, you, uh, when you when you test these pods, you have to use a when the rocket is loaded. We use a multimeter and we check to make sure there's no stray voltage. So you have the lowest ranking airman do it, and you have to stand back with your two hands and these long prongs because if the rocket motor fires, you're losing your hand. So uh, yeah. they 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 usually have the lowest ranking guy do that. And so they yeah, and sometimes they will. Common thing, yeah, the lowest ranking do the shit job. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, and everybody's kind of wincing back if he's like, yeah, I've never loaded rockets before. It's like, oh, geez, is he going to set this one off? Nope. All right, cool. <laughs> and, yeah. And in terms of weapons for, for bombs, you're using guided and unguided bombs, I assume. Is there a major difference for you? Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, kind of. So we use both uh, dumb, so unguided and guided bombs. Uh, we have uh, 500, there's, there's a 250-pound, 500-pound, 1,000-pound, and a 2,000-pound variant of most bombs. Um, it's uh, a modular system, so every one of those classes of bombs, except for the 250, so the 500, the 1,000, the 2,000, all come in uh, laser, GPS, and then mixed guidance. So they take a bomb body, which is the explosive part, and then you strap... Uh, fins or a laser guide or whatever it's you know going to be turned into on the front and back and there's your new variant of the bomb that's so cool. yeah but it's it's actually it's quite it's cost effective and it's uh, quite interesting because um if a battlefield commander is uh saying because they're the ones that kind of send the orders down of what type of munitions that they want so ammo which are the guys that actually build these bombs they they actually literally are in the bomb dump uh or wherever they keep all the explosives and they get a frag order, say like, hey, we need um, uh, 50 or 20, however many uh, JDAMs, the GBU-38s ready. It's, they take the 500-pound Mark 82, which is just a regular dumb bomb, and then they screw the uh, GPS on it and then the tail fins on it. And they build it, and then they send it out to us to load. Um, but then, say, they want to change it to laser guide, they can just take the bombs back, take those parts off, put the laser guide part on, and send it back. So... It's a uh, quite in, quite. I thought it was quite interesting when I first found out about that. I, I thought everything was kind of just its own type of bomb, but nope. Yeah, it's all based off of the same uh, base bodies, basically. And when do you use? You have GPS, you have laser guided, and you have mixed guidance. Okay, GPS is basically you're using the positioning system and you determine mm -hmm. where it should go, and then it it's get guided there, I assume. And laser means somebody needs to point the laser there it could be a guy on the ground or in mm -hmm. the aircraft is this still correct yeah uh with the laser guided system it's uh 
they they're um, semi-encrypted, well not encrypted, but basically uh, the lasers are have a very have a specific pulse pattern to them. So you can either yes, someone on the ground can be pointing a laser, um, but you can also the aircraft actually have pods. They have uh, targeting pods on them, or they can be they can be fitted with it, um, and they can laze their own targets uh, or um, some tactics, I don't know how often it's really used because it's not really needed, um, but a drone or some other aircraft with the laser can actually laser your target for you, and then you can come in for the strike. Uh, oh, so yeah. it's used in somewhere where there might be uh, heavy anti-air, and so you'll have a drone way up high or another jet as far away as you can be up in the clouds, lasing a target, and then you'll have your other jet come in low and fast through mountain ranges, drop, and then uh, get out as soon as he can, but he doesn't actually have to try and take the time to acquire his own target um, on his screen. It's already laced. He just has to come in at an attack vector and Fly punch and off forget, a bomb yeah. and yeah, and get out. And, and what is mixed guidance? Uh, mixed guidance is just it's a comma. It's the uh, the the front of it. It just has uh, a a laser and a GPS in it, so it can be either or. Um, we don't we we uh, they're loaded. A bit more frequently than I would think, because they're a lot more they're a lot more expensive and a bit more complicated to load. And I can get into the actual how that how these different bombs, like you asked, um, affect like my job and um, stuff like that for loading procedures. But um, yeah, it's it's basically it's got the GPS in, unit in it and it's got a laser uh, seeker in it. So the pilot can choose which one he wants depending on what he's dropping it on. So that's more for if they don't know, like if they're flying. Um, if they're flying close air support, but they're waiting for troops in contact, so they're waiting for something to happen, so they don't know uh, what kind of targets they're going to have to hit. GPS is um, good, and it's an easy fire and forget. It works in all weather, but laser allows you to actually track moving targets. So, yeah. say it's a convoy, um, uh, they can use the laser part, but if it's just like a building and there's really bad cloud cover or they don't know how the weather's going to act up, uh, they could use the GPS, or so it's a, it's it's just a combination of both. Okay, yeah, that's very interesting that you can use the laser. Of course, you can lose it on use it on on moving targets and on static targets. Yeah, you use the. Mm -hmm. Ah, yeah, very interesting. And and you mentioned for you there's a difference if you're loading them those weapons in in what way? Most of the guided munitions. Uh, so everything goes up on the rack the same. Uh, it goes up. And there's these uh, hooks that um, grab onto these little uh, lugs that you know lock the bomb into place, and then you sway it. So you put there's these little feet on the side of the pylon that hold the bomb in place, so it doesn't rock back and forth while you're flying. That's mostly the same. What really uh, changes between munitions is uh, so a GPS guided bomb has to have a cable that connects to it. So this, these are like really minor things. They don't, it, it's only like a couple of seconds or like maybe a minute, depending on which type of rack you're loading it on. Um, but the, the GPS guided bombs, they actually communicate with the aircraft. So they have a cable. And then uh, laser bombs do not. Um, and then there's a lot of bombs that actually have wires. I, I know this is going to sound extremely archaic, but uh, a dumb bomb uh, actually has wires that we have specific uh, specifications that we're supposed to cut them to. And they actually hold the uh, the fuse in the front from spinning. And then it also usually pulls the activation of uh, uh, something, usually something to activate. So on a laser guided bomb, there's fins in the back that pop open. 
So it's quite literally just a cable that is, that is run through a, a switch, like a mechanical switch, and when the bomb drops, it pulls on the cable and pops the switch, and then just opens the fins. It's a very basic, can't jam it or anything like that, and it's the same thing on the dumb bombs. It's just, just a cable that's popped through something, and it's got a little, like, uh, I don't know what you call it. It's like I got a little wedge on the end, basically, a little clamp, and it just pulls on out and allows it to freely spin. Super simple. Yeah, if it works, I mean, it's usually better. I mean, if you can jam it or damage it in an auto way, it's excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's super simple. I thought, like, when I first got in, I thought it was just kind of, they had a pin or something that they would pull, and then when it actually dropped, it would have, like, sensors or something in it. Nope, just a cable. All mechanical. And in regards to, um, to, the, to the missiles, do you have the Maverick? And are there other uh, air-to-ground missiles you operate on? Uh, yeah, there's um, there's a few. So main air-to-ground for the F-16 is the AGM-65 Maverick, and then the AGM-88, sorry, uh, HARM, also known as the high-speed anti-radiation missile. So that one is used for uh, uh, suppression of enemy air defenses or SEED missions. Uh, basically, it just locks onto a radar target. So whether it's a SAM site or like a Tunguska or something, something that has active radar, and it just locks onto it passively, flies to it as fast as possible, and detonates. So it's uh, if there's enemy air defenses, which is uh, a, there's a squadron called Wild Weasel, which is actually where one of the squadrons I'm going to over in Korea. Their whole their whole mission is just to destroy <laughs> anti-air defenses with aircraft. So they have a mantra called "You gotta be shitting me," because <laughs> they st they started this way back in. I do believe the first Wild Weasel Squadron was done with F fours. Yeah, yeah, um, I think it was two in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was that was their mantra because, I mean, you're using aircraft to take down anti-aircraft defenses, but they're very effective. Um, the enemy can't really see that they're coming in unless they see the launch or if they have uh, a different type of radar that's actually actively scanning and they see it coming towards them. So they have two choices: they can either let it hit or they can turn their radar off. Yeah, yeah. So, basically, you 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 respond or you don't respond or you get hit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And either way, if they shut their radar off, you know, it's the same same effect. So, but those are the two main ones that we use for air to ground. There are technically the F sixteen can load a bunch of other air to ground munitions, but the, we do not use them. We do not really actively use those weapons. And the Maverick, what kind of guidance system does it have? Uh, it uses many different types. It depends on the model. So the, the AGM comes in two major flavors, which is the high explosive anti warhead, or sorry, the uh, high explosive anti tank warhead, which is the normal tank buster one. And then it comes in a 300 pound um, ish. It's like a, it, it, there's also a blast fragmentation version. Um, and then, so those two types both have uh, a uh, electro-optical, so guide-by-wire, so you're flying it with a camera. It has a laser-guided. Oh, and then it has infrared. It has, a, like, a heat-seeking type uh, automatic deal. So you can get them in any flavor. You can get them in those two flavors of explosives with those three different types of uh, guidance systems. Um, heat-seeking for ground targets? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, um, they can, uh, it will, the targeting pod, or actually the pilot can look directly through the Maverick when he's targeting and use its camera to target, 
or he can use his his targeting pod, which will also communicate with the missile, and he can uh, uh, designate a target, and it will yeah, it uses ah, the heat okay, it, it it uses the heat signature of an existing vehicle, and yeah, okay, I get it, yeah, I was yeah exactly, I, I was I was thinking like like basically blind firing and it it, it moves to the to the hardest area, yeah, okay, that was like a dumb thought <laughs> on my part. <laughs> I mean. I mean, potentially. I don't really know about. It. I don't know the uh, specifics on its like, uh, like its uh, what do you call it? Like the computer on board. But that would that would not be surprising to me if it had a dumb fire mode where it would try to seek something out. Probably highly frowned upon, just in case you're hitting uh, something random like another aircraft, which would be yeah. hilarious. Uh, and about. Um... So you mentioned uh, the fragmentation round. This is for again for so for soft targets. If you use it against soft targets, yeah, um, yes, it would be that would be the one you want to use against uh, softer targets or hitting a building or a group of people if you wanted to. Um, however, I do believe it's it's been effectively used against some fairly heavy armor just because of the sheer amount of explosive that's in it. Because uh, as much as um, say you know going into uh war thunder again so, say as much as people would say uh you need to have this much penetration to get through a tank i'm pretty sure 300 pounds of high explosive right on the armor would at least crush in the hull yeah um, or you kill kill the kill the pa passengers the crew oh yeah, most definitely that that would they would not be feeling too great after <laughs> getting hit by one of those because sometimes i think the armor can survive but the crew is basically out of action uh correct <laughs> I mean, you don't have to. I mean, in in Warfinder terms, it would be you are unconscious. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because you can't die in Warfinder. Crew, crew knocked out. Yeah, definitely. crew knocked out. Yeah, yeah, like crew knocked out from from hitting a bench. <laughs> yeah, that or a hull break on literally anything. Doesn't matter how much armor you have, it's going to crush that superstructure. So <laughs> now, um, in terms of. I have, an, I have a more or less a trivia question. There's this uh, out there on, I think about the Vietnam War where they, they put a toilet instead of a bomb or they put the toilet around the bomb in the Vietnam War and, <laughs> and they, they dropped it on the enemy accordingly. Would you, I mean, if who did this was basically also weapons troops, I assume. <laughs> problem that sounds like something we would do <laughs> that's for sure uh i mean back then definitely they they can they could have gotten away with uh stuff like that for sure uh nowadays probably not you'd probably get in trouble for something like that yeah um, I can I do assume. it's probably too polit uh too politically incorrect and this is not oh. gonna fly well oh yeah not not in today's uh no that definitely not um we're not even allowed to um and i'm kind of i'm kind of sad about this uh you know how uh, back in the day you would always see uh the paint jobs on the aircraft uh, uh the tiger teeth uh, the crazy paintings the the yeah. bomb the bomb kills and stuff like that um we actually sometimes they'll do it when they're when they're overseas uh if they're uh downrange if a jet goes up and gets a couple of kills over the course of a week the crew chief will proudly do his little bomb decals but they usually get painted over and um Pretty much every aircraft is just boring old uh, Air Force Gray. There's no, no fun camouflages anymore, uh, uh, except for the A-10s. Uh, those definitely still have their viper teeth and the warthog 
and the shark teeth on them. Those are probably the only ones I've seen in active duty that have a fairly interesting uh, paint job on them. Do you know why the A10 is still allowed the paint job and everything? I don't like. I don't have a specific on that, but I would guess it's because that thing has been around for so long and it is so incredibly effective that the uh, the maintenance personnel were just like, "Look, we want to keep this because it's a you know symbol of the old times." And it, it's just it. I mean, they just look mean. It's a. <clears throat> there's definitely. I mean, if you've if you've ever uh, read or heard about it, the uh, just the engine sounds flying over sends fear through. Uh, people who are on the other side of it or know what it is uh there's some personal accounts of um uh fighters who have had to be on the receiving end and survive and it's 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 a um there's some mental there's a, there's a huge mental thing to it just hearing the mo- the engines go over and not knowing where it's going to strike and then you hear the the crackling of the 30 mil hitting the ground and then the 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 buzz the the burt as it is you know coming out of nowhere and then you don't know where it's going can't hear it because it's quiet and it strikes again. So, it might, it's, it, I think it's just part of that. I think it's a lot of pride with the, uh, the maintenance personnel that work on that aircraft. They, they wanted to keep it. So, yeah. Okay. Makes sense. And, and the other thing is, um, I always see the, these writings on the bombs, like uh, you see, yeah, special message to ESAC for Hitler and, and, and stuff like mm-hmm. this. Is, is this still common or is this also basically uh, not? Yeah, not not at all. It's with the same thing with, uh, like you had said, being more politically correct. Which, um, personally, I think it's funny because the 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 people have tried to write things on there, and they usually get in trouble. And the reasoning is uh, that's offensive to the people that were around. And I'm just kind of like more offensive than dropping a bomb yeah, on them. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a little a little funny. It's it's not a huge deal. Um, they do it sometimes, but anytime I've seen it, uh, searching on different. I guess like the Reddit military sub and a couple of other places you'll see it on. There's a bunch of Facebook groups <clears throat> that are uh, like, so maintainer humor or something like that. Uh, you'll see it. Somebody, they're usually memes though. There was a set of bombs that I saw with a spray paint that said bombs out for Harambe, you know, haha, back when that used to be funny. <laughs> if it ever was. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the Harambe meme never, never really caught on to me. I don't know. It's, it's. I think this is one of the those that really didn't translate well to Europe. Hey man, it was just I, honestly there was nothing to translate. It was literally just, I, I it, a lot of memes are just kind of, that's what they are, just kind of yeah. dumb. So no, no reason. But, um, yeah, there is there is some actual merit to it. I will say because uh, over there's a, there's a lot of contracting that goes on in uh, the military in general uh pretty much every aspect of everything that a military personnel person will do uh there's that you're in some way there is some civilian aspects so for us um which i thought was interesting when i first got in but it makes sense now is like they're putting up say they say they put up a new fence on your base or like somewhere like that usually civilian contractors are actually on base doing that so some civilian company from the local area uh doing the fence work they obviously have to get clearance and everything um, and do background checks, but they'll be doing that. It's the same thing overseas. Uh, at some of the uh, European bases, there are uh, local nationals that are working there. So if it was the bases in Italy, there's actually Italian personnel and also Italian military working on the base with us. Um, so overseas, they actually do have, um, uh, depending on which Middle Eastern base it is, they'll have 
uh, people of the local area who are business owners working on base. They might be doing something simple like uh, doing food or, or sanitation or something like that. But it would make sense to if they did catch us putting you know derogatory terms on a bomb, they might not like that. Um, it makes it easier for them to sympathize with the um, local extremists if they want. And since they're on base, they could potentially try and cause some, not havoc, but some trouble. So it makes a little bit of sense, but <laughs> it yeah, would, in that it sense, would, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It would be really funny to drop a toilet on someone though. I do. I, I, I would say that that would be probably a highlight of my career if I had gotten to see that. <laughs> yeah. Now, moving to, to something uh, on the lighter side, what do you really like on your job? What do you think is great? For instance, I don't know what, what kind of, of aspect you like most about the aircraft or the weapons or doing your job. All right. So, um, so I, don't know how, I don't know what kind of audience you have, but uh, if there are other maintenance personnel, especially in the Air Force, that are listening to it, <laughs> I think that uh, a weapons troop is one of the... I guess from the outside, the coolest, one of the, one of the coolest jobs uh, you can have in the maintenance world. So we work next to crew chiefs or the yeah, kind of general mechanics, but they do, they do a lot more stuff on the aircraft than we do because uh, they're dealing with pretty much everything. And then you have specialists or specs. So they're the guys that work with all the avionics and the electronics. So yeah, that's kind of cool. We call them nerds a lot because that's what a lot of them are. You'll see them playing magic and all that kind of stuff like in their office. Uh, when they're not doing anything, and um, they work, you know, they work with a lot of computer stuff on the aircraft. Uh, crew chiefs change the oil, if any. Well, th them and engines troops. So the guy, the engines guys that work specifically with the engine, uh, they do the oil. They change tires. Uh, they do basically all the basic checks uh, for the aircraft to fly. But I mean, I mean, what, what can I say? It's pretty awesome to be able to say that I <laughs> load high explosives onto a jet that goes like Mach 1.5 and it goes in and drops these and it's uh, pretty satisfying actually. Um, I haven't gotten experience it but I have heard first account from other people is there's no other feeling when you scramble to load up a jet as fast as possible it takes off with its two wingmen and it comes back with nothing on it. So they've dropped every single munition. So I think it's really cool. There's a lot of pride with weapons troops. A lot of them feel uh, the same way. That we have, that you know, a lot of them will say that they they think that we're the most important job, but I don't. I really won't cut into that, uh, <laughs> not to anger anybody. But it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely cool. It's definitely it's definitely got that little bit of a, it's got that vibe to it. Yeah, I mean, um, you're, you're as closest to the action as possible without being the actual pilot, you could say. Yeah, it's kind of the. What he always tell us is like technically everybody's directly involved with the uh, with the mission. Uh, some people are more directly involved, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, so, there, so there's that part with the actual job and how I feel about it. Now, um, uh, so the aircraft itself, uh, funny enough, which I can go into if you like. So the F-16 is extremely hard to work on. It's um, on paper, it's an amazing aircraft. It's uh, everything's routed very in very small spaces. There's wires running through conduits and all this stuff it's a very it's very compact there's a lot of stuff packed into a very small package but when you try to work on that you have to go through all of that crap to get to like some simple component 
uh, that needs to get replaced. Like if a, like a, a relay goes bad or something, you usually have to rip apart a wing uh, in order to get to it. Or you have to rip out a hydraulic drive or something like that. So it's compact, but it's not very maintenance friendly. Personally, yeah, it's personally I can't really. Uh, I'm looking forward to working on other aircraft. I want to get the experience in it. Uh, uh, as a weapons troop, um, there's a certain part in your career where you've done enough, or it's a very specific training. We have uh, books that we, we these little booklets that we read called CDCs, or basically just on our job. It's it's upgrade training. So once we reach a certain level, we can we can work on any jet, but crew chiefs are usually stuck, and so are avionics, or not so much avionics, but uh, crew chiefs are kind of stuck. Like uh, they can go to other aircraft, but they have to be further along in their training, uh, usually at the staff sergeant type rank, so E5, someone who's been in about five or six years. They have the opportunity to go to other aircraft, but they also have to go through a lot more training. So their their stuff is much more specific to each aircraft. For us, the bomb racks and the gun systems are actually, they're used on a lot of other aircraft. So like I was saying, the M61A1 gun system is used in the F-15. So you already know how to work on that. You already know how to do it. You just need to learn the specifics of how that gun is set inside the aircraft, which is actually simpler, much simpler on an F-15. Um, and the same thing with bomb racks. Uh, so like the Mao 12 bomb rack, the main heavy duty, heavy lifting one that can basically, I think it has a capacity of something stupid, like 8,000 pounds that it can carry. Um, that bomb rack is the same in all aircraft that use it. So there's not a whole lot to it. So you can easily swap from aircraft to aircraft. And, and what aircraft would you love to work on next? Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, being able to work on the F-15s because it's going to be something different. It's another fighter. Uh, however, if I could, if I could choose anything, it would be definitely the A-10, the legendary A-10. I wanna, <laughs> I wanna get in there. I wanna get hands-on because, I mean, everybody, uh, anybody who likes aircraft and aircraft history, loves that Gatwick gun system in there. And I think it's awesome to have the opportunity, <clears throat> just because I love playing around and taking things apart, mechanically minded. I think it'd be awesome to actually like, basically get intimate with that system. Uh, it's pretty. It's already pretty interesting with the M61 because it is a 20 millimeter Gatling system, but it, yeah, yeah, it's just the A10 has such a mantra around it, and uh, yeah. everybody who's worked on it says they love that aircraft. Um, <laughs> there's some things on it that are a pig to work on, but everybody, I don't think I've met one person that has worked on A10s that said that they would rather work on F16s or some other fighter. They love that aircraft. That's really interesting because the, the A10 has quite a reputation, but but I only heard it from civilians so far, so you you never really know how it translates. But in this case, it mm -hmm. sounds the reputation inside the Air Force is is even way higher than how outside of it. Oh yeah, um, it, there would have been a lot of angry maintenance personnel and pilots if they had. Uh, when they were trying to kill that, when they were trying to kill the A-10 for the fifth time or whatever, however many times they've tried to kill it now, oh, there would have been so many angry personnel within the Air Force. That was that was not going to happen. Yeah, I heard that. that, that, that I, I was like, is it still around? Because I heard so many times that it will get phased out and they will stop and there's nothing more going on. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. <clears throat> is there any other plane that has like this kind of reputation within the Air Force? Um, <laughs> there's planes that have bad reputations. I'll tell you that. There's planes. There's planes that definitely have bad reputations. Which ones? Um, 
Oh, so uh, first positive, uh, us usually when people do, it's the older guys. It's the people that have been in for uh, 15, 20 years that have worked on different aircraft. I actually just heard it today when I, because I'm doing my paperwork to get out, get out of here. Uh, I don't remember which, <clears throat> what the designation was, but one of our uh, chief master sergeants here was talking about how he loved the Aardvark. Uh, he used to work on that aircraft and he loved that one. He said it was, I said, he said it was fairly easy to work on. And it was just one of his favorite aircraft he had ever worked on. Um, so it's usually older aircraft that have <clears throat> uh, a better reputation in general. Um, but as far as to the level of the A-10, I don't think anybody, anything has that. Um, some of the crew chiefs came from uh, heavies, so the uh, transport aircraft, so C-130s, C-17s, C-5s. Uh, those are called heavies. Um, they love their heavies. They don't like the fighter world. They don't like working on fighter aircraft. They like working on their C-130 because they're doing all their checks and stuff, and they can just get inside, close the door, and you know, roam around inside and do their own thing while they might maybe have a radio going or something. And you can't do that on the 16. Yeah, so. I, I, it's a bit more um, so, narrow. Yeah, and then in terms of negative, huh, definitely the 16. A lot of people have negative thoughts of the 16 in general because, like I said, it is a pain in the ass to try and work on. There is a lot of small stuff, like things you got to fit your hand through and like try and undo a bolt without dropping it. That's the other thing that sucks is if you drop it, you are spending however many hours it takes to find that little tiny nut. Yeah. Even if it fell all the way through the, the jet. Um, people don't, actually a lot of people don't like C-130. Some of the people that came from them, they say that they're pieces of crap because they're uh, very old at this point. Um, oh, and then bombers. Definitely bombers. Uh, uh, weapons <laughs> troops in general don't, some people love bombers. Um, because when I, I, I guess it made sense when I kind of thought about it. So loading up a, a 16 with like four bombs, four missiles, chaff flare, and uh, and uh, it's ammo. Yeah, it can it can take a good crew, like a really really fast weapons crew, and it's like it's like uh, you're generating for a sortie. Like real world stuff is happening. It can take them a 20 to 30 minutes to load the jet, which is, that's, that's very, very fast. That's a extremely good crew. Some people would probably boast they could do it faster. I don't really remember for times, but a bomber, like a fully laden B 52 that takes, that takes all day. <laughs> that takes an entire shift to load. So, uh, I don't remember like 72, 500 pound bombs, depending on the configuration. It takes a while. Yeah. So, that's some heavy lifting. Oh yeah, so weapons troops kind of hate it sometimes because like, man, I've done nothing today except for load bombs. But then other people are super happy because like, man, I've done nothing but load bombs today, and because it's because they don't have to do any other crap. They just they load the jet and then they go home, kind of yeah. thing. So I guess it depends if if one is into variation or if he just want to do a simple shop. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, on that, there's actually a there's a definite split in in the weapons guys a lot of people there there are some people that really pride themselves and are very good and very efficient at uh doing loading and they love it but then there's other crews like personally myself i like doing maintenance i like working i actually as much as i've said it's really crappy to work on the m61 i like um uh working on the gun system i like doing maintenance uh it's uh it's not as monotonous because loading is the same thing every single time uh in fact we have to keep up on our training uh, once a month, we're supposed to go and actually make sure that our uh, we are still capable 
of loading ammunition safely and within a reasonable time. It's called Load Barn, and we have other weapons troops who are very good loaders, usually. <laughs> Most of the time, they're pretty good. Uh, watch us, and they time us, and we have to do everything by the book safely um, and as fast as possible. So, and in fact, out of that, um, in Korea, they do it the peninsula-wide one. Uh, the people that have done the best, so the fastest times with the least amount of uh, discrepancies, so you know the safest and the fastest, actually compete with each other. They they actually have we have competitions where the two best load crews of the two different uh, units will uh, do a head. They'll they'll do a face-off with two different jets, and people come and spectate. Like people come and watch this from base, like from all sorts of different career fields. They may not even be maintenance. They might be finance or someone who works in an office. And they'll come out and they'll watch people just uh, load these jets as fast and as safely as possible. It's it's a pretty huge thing within the weapons community. Uh, so, but yeah, we literally have competitions on who can load aircraft the fastest. So, it's yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, that could actually be really interesting to watch it to a certain degree. I mean, especially, I've, I think it could be even uh, appeal for the general public if you, if you have one... If you have proper commentary on it as well, for instance, ex explaining some stuff besides that, that would be really interesting. But I guess it's it's obsec to mm -hmm. film that and oh, comment no. everything. Um, actually, no. You can find videos on YouTube specifically of the Korean. It's called the Peninsula, the Peninsula Wide uh, uh, Load Comp is what it's called. Load competition. Um, you can find them on YouTube. They, it's actually, like I said, it's a huge spectacle. They actually let um, Korean nationals come on base, I think. It depends on who they are. Um, come on base and watch, and the Korean Air Force actually competes with us. Um, usually winning because they don't have as many safety regs. <laughs> they, don't have to, they, don't, they don't have to follow as many safety regulations and do quite as many like little little checks and stuff. So they usually, um, they usually do it faster. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's actually a huge thing. You can, you can find it on YouTube. Um, I, I would be happy in the future either providing commentary or watching it at the same time and kind of explaining what you're seeing them do. Um, but yeah, no, you can you can find it. It's uh, quite interesting. Uh, well, we covered a lot. Um, is there anything you want to add or you you want want to to expand further? The the air to air missiles. Although I guess that was kind of answered a bit earlier. It's it's pretty simple. We have basically a heat seeker, uh, which is the AIM-9, you know, the, the heat seeker, very maneuverable, and the AIM-120, which is a long-range, uh, semi-radar-guided or fully active radar-guided air-to-air. Uh, uh, it's a uh, technically it's medium-range, but it, it can strike out pretty far. The the so, one is the sidewinder, and the other is the sparrow. Uh, we don't actually know. Uh, so sorry, one, the AIM-9M or the AIM-9LM and the X variant are called sidewinders. The AIM-120 is called an AMRAM. Uh, it's uh, the advanced medium-range anti-air missile, uh, and literally just call them AMRAMs. Uh, the AIM-7 Sparrow, which you were just mentioning, we don't actually use that anymore. The only branch that uses that is the Navy. Ah, okay. And, and the Phoenix is also a Navy weapon? Oh, uh, the Phoenix is also Navy, and that was only specifically used on the F-14. The F-14 Tomcat was the only aircraft <clears throat> that was, as far as I know, that was produced. I'm sure other aircraft could carry it. Um, was the only aircraft that ever carried it, and I do believe it was only used once in combat. And I don't believe it was American either. It was a Israeli. I uh, don't quote me on that though. But it, it was only ever used once. So, well, again, a very interesting talk. Thank you very much for your time. 
Uh, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. And people, if you want to know, Quentin also has a YouTube channel. Right now, there's only gaming content, but there might be potentially some military content in the future. And that is I correct. will put it in the I put a link in the description. So if you want to check it out, head over. And so everyone, thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye.